0: Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on christianfocus.com and amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Luke chapter 5. This is going to be kind of a devotional. Kind of continuing with the discipleship theme, Um, Luke chapter 5, which Luke chapter 5 probably is Luke's account of what we looked at very briefly yesterday in Mark 1, when Jesus first called uh, the four fishermen brothers to follow him, okay, to kind of the official discipleship. Mark 1 records it, Matthew 4 records it. Luke 5 is probably just a more detailed account of that. And yet some commentators would say it's a separate account of a secondary thing that happened later. For our purposes this morning, it really doesn't matter. Here's the question that we're really trying to ask. What's going to sustain you for the long run in doing this type of intensive, life-on-life, deep discipleship? Uh, Because, as we talked about yesterday, it's hard. It's time-intensive. If you stay in it long enough, uh, you're going to have people that kind of... uh, bite the hand that feeds them, so to speak. They're going to get mad at God, and they're going to take it out on you. Uh, even some of the conversations around the dinner table last night, the people that you're trying to minister to, and they're, they're lying to you, they hurt you. Uh, it, it, it is a messy business, okay? If you're looking for something fun and easy, um, don't become a parent, and don't do disciple making in the way that we're talking about it, because it's time intensive, and sometimes if you're looking for the reward right there in front of you, uh, sometimes you have to wait a long time before you see it. I remember hearing John Piper speak at a conference years ago. Was, I think it was the 500th anniversary of John Calvin, something or another. And it was talking about Calvin being a pilgrim and kind of that theme in his life, I think. But one of the things Piper said at that conference, he said, it's a lot harder to be a pilgrim when you're in your 60s than when you're in your 20s. And I don't think any of us are in our 60s, but just, just think about that. It's a lot harder to kind of live zealously, live on the edge, live sacrificially. The older you get... The more responsibility you get, uh, the more children you get, just the more tired you get, okay? Uh, It's hard to keep living like a pilgrim, living sacrificially. So what's going to sustain you for the long run? And again, when I ask this question, I'm not assuming that most of you are going to stay on staff with Campus Outreach the rest of your life. I'm not assuming that most of you are going to be in full-time ministry the rest of your life. I was teaching some of this discipleship material In a a Sunday school class at at Briarwood, where I'm guessing the average age was in their 50s somewhere. And uh, one of the guys came up to me probably after a month and said, I'm tracking with you uh, because I was really trying to make a push for all of you late people in the church to find people younger than you, less mature, and mentor them, and disciple them. And he said, I'm tracking with everything you're saying. He said, but I just got to be honest. I'll tell you my major problem, it's comfort. He said, I have grown very comfortable late in life. And what you're talking about doing sounds right, but it doesn't sound comfortable. And how do I, in a sense, get over my own comfort? Which, I I mean, I appreciate the honesty and uh, the question. So in a sense, that's what we're really looking at this morning. How do we get over ourselves? How do we stay motivated? Luke chapter 5, let's look at uh, verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennariset. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished... Speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked all night and we caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and they filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Now, Interesting story. It seems like Jesus was maybe using Peter's boat as also like a pulpit to kind of just get out a couple of feet from the shore so he wouldn't be overwhelmed by the crowds pressing on him. He's preaching, and this is a total side note, but as I've just meditated on this passage, it's been helpful for me. Peter seems like he's there, maybe in the boat or right on the shore, cleaning his nets, kind of cleaning his nets, listening to Jesus. And he doesn't seem impacted by the sermon at all. No, he's going to get really impacted before this story's over. So, you know, we could take an application. I mean, maybe that's because he was too distracted cleaning his nets, you know, and that's like David saying, don't be distracted on your laptop. Uh, but, you know, I, I rather think it's more like this, that Peter was really listening to the sermon, <clears throat> and it was Jesus' sermon. So it's probably a great sermon, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. But there are going to be times where we go lead a Bible study, we go speak at a weekly meeting, we go have a one-on-one with somebody and share some scriptural truth with them, and they're not going to seem like they're changed at all. You ever had that experience? And you feel like you had that experience every week? It's like even Jesus had that experience. When he's faithfully ministering the word, it doesn't seem like Peter is impacted at all. And then Jesus starts talking to Peter, says, Hey, why don't you put back out, let the nets down again? And, you know, Peter's response seems to be a little bit patronizing, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind of like he's like, Hey, master, you're the preacher. You keep doing your thing. I'm the fisherman. I know how this thing works. The fish tend to bite at night around here. I fished all night, we caught nothing. But, because I really respect you, you ask me to, I'll go do it. Okay? And he goes and does it. And, what happens? Overwhelmed. So many fish in the boat, they have to call their friends to come help because we're about to sink. Just a side note here. There are going to be times in life, whether you think about ministry or you think about something else, where it seems as though God is blessing you so much, the lifeboat of your life is going to sink. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, have you ever... Took time to thank the Lord and almost been overwhelmed with how good your life was. You know, I was I was at a, it was my my family's Thanksgiving, not this year, but last year. And just as my father, who I guess at that point was 69, older in life, and you know, looking around at all his children, all believers, they're all married believers, all the grandkids, and he just in tears starts saying, and it didn't sound prideful at all. It sounded this kind of humility of, God's blessed us so much. I mean, I can't even think of a family blessed as much as us. And there was just this gratitude overflowing. And here's the thing, guys. If you're sitting in this room today, right now, and a lot of you I don't know hardly anything about. I know this. You live in America in the 21st century. So it's just there's a lot of blessings that come with that, right? I mean free refills, air conditioning in all the buildings we go into. I mean, there's lots of just temporal blessings that are really nice to have in the United States of America in the 21st century. But then, you're working for Campus Outreach. I think it's highly likely you're a Christian. You get to go to heaven when you die and live with Christ for all eternity. I mean, our lives have been overwhelmed with blessings. And there ought to be times where we stop and we pause and we think about it. And it's almost like a weight that's overwhelming. It's like, God... Why have you been so good to me? I mean, even, you know, the devotion from yesterday, and I talked about prioritizing worship in the place of prayer. And when I went out yesterday during our break, I was going to walk and pray, you know, got a lot of stuff going on, and I kind of just launched straight in to all the stuff going on. And I had to remind myself, wait, stop, and just thank the Lord. And it was easy. It's like just this weather, the sunshine that I'm healthy enough to get out here and do this, and I'm not in any pain. I mean, just, it's easy, and it just ought to be constant. God, you're a good God. We bless you. We worship you. We ought to be doing that all the time. We ought to almost be overwhelmed. Um, When my kids were younger, praise the Lord, they've matured just a little bit, okay? But when they were younger, and they would really complain about something, okay? And it usually was like, Dad, I want the brand-new iPhone, like everybody in my class has the brand-new iPhone. And I'd be like, everybody in your class doesn't have the brand-new iPhone, and my wife would look at me and she's like, I think they actually do. I was like, I still don't care. You're not getting the brand new iPhone. You know, they'd be like, why? Wow, this is not fair. And they'd want to rage and, you know, they'd want to talk about it. And, I, and finally, I'd get to a point where I said, listen, I'm not going to have this conversation with you anymore. I said, the only way I'll continue having a conversation with you about this thing that you think you lack in your life is go sit in your room, get a piece of paper and a pen, and write down 30 good things in your life. And you can imagine their response I can't think of 30 good things in my life. i you know, <laughs> And I said, well, let let me, here, I'm going to give you two starters, right? Clean air to breathe. Running water. And I said, listen. And then, you know, I'd say, let me see that old iPhone of yours that you don't like, you know. I'd say, well, you don't get this back until you come up with 30 good things, right? No no more talking. And it was amazing, you know. (laughs) They'd come back out of their room finally with the list. And just think about how their attitude perspective had changed. And guys, as adults, mm-hmm. there are times when we need to do the exact same thing. You may not have to actually get pen and paper, but you wake up in the middle of the night, maybe you're worried, you're overwhelmed, one of the best things you can do is just say, wait a second. I mean, you know that that famous verse in Philippians 4, 6, do not worry about anything but in everything through prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, the point is, when you feel overwhelmed with all the negative stuff, stop and think, Lord, there's so much to be thankful for. I mean, Peter had just gone from, I got no fish, to i got so much fish, it's about to ruin my boat. He was filled. He was filled. So what happens? Then he falls. Look at this. Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. Now This is another one of these uh, passages that I really like. I've taught on it multiple times. And just to be honest... The first handful of times I've taught on it, I would teach this as kind of a New Testament version of the fear of the Lord, right? Peter sees how great and good God is right in front of him, so the sense that he falls down saying, I don't deserve to be here. And so I would kind of teach this as, man, this is the kind of awe and respect we ought to have for Jesus. And, but the more I've studied it, the more I've realized this, this is not a good example of the fear of the Lord, okay, uh, for, for two reasons. The true fear of the Lord never is going to say, get away. It's always going to say, I want more. I'm so in love with you, I want to be in your presence, even if it kills me. Okay? That's the first thing. Now, let me just pause with that for a second. Okay? Um, probably many of you know the man that started Broadwood Presbyterian Church, and in many ways, he and his wife were really responsible for starting campus outreach, Frank Barker. One of the things that people said about him is he never got over his own conversion. If you ever heard him talk about his testament, how he came to Christ, there was still this kind of sense of, I was so bad. I was so lost. And, and the way that God went out of his way to pursue him. And that, that, it led to so much humility in his life. And therefore, so much power in ministry and fruitfulness. So there is a right kind of humility, right? To be shocked, to be awed, to be like, I don't deserve to be here. But it should never turn into, and I, and I do feel so bad. I don't want to be here. That's that's the ditch on the other side of the road. <laughs> I'm so humbled. I think I don't I don't want to be here anymore. And that happens to people sometimes, right? They're so despairing. They spend too much time thinking about their sin. Well, the third point of this, he's fallen. Now he's going to follow. Verse ten. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, I said there were two reasons that I don't think this is an example of the proper fear of the Lord. The second was a little more obvious because Jesus says, Do not fear. Right? If this was the good kind of fear that Proverbs exhorts us to, Jesus wouldn't say, Stop it. Stop doing what the proverbs tell you to do. He realized Peter, in some sense, had a proper view of Jesus and his majesty and his power and his glory. He didn't have a proper view of Jesus and his goodness and his love and his kindness and his compassion and his gentleness. So he had to say, "Don't fear me like that, Peter. All me, be in worship, but don't run away, and don't want me to run away." But he does say, now, just imagine in this state of shock and awe and humility, almost to the point of get away from me. He says, no, no, no. I'm still a kind master. You don't have to get away from me. He says, I want you to leave everything and follow me. And there was no decision, right? You get up, you leave your house, you leave your boat, you leave your business, you leave the nets, you leave the hired servants, you leave everybody. There's this magnetism to Christ. Now, I want us to look at one more story to kind of Pick up, so flip to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Because again, what, what are we really trying to look at here is what will sustain you for the long haul? So, Peter's with Jesus for years. And we all know there were ups and downs, right? There were moments of greatness. Maybe the greatest is, I think it's in Matthew 16, where he's like, who do you say I am? You're the Messiah, right? He gets it right, and he's like, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my... Father who's in heaven, it's like this grand moment. And then about three seconds later, he's like, now listen, I'm going to have to go to the cross. And Peter thinks he's being, you know, Jesus' best friend, prime minister. Let me pull you to the side, Jesus, give you a little advice. That'll never happen to you. You know, and Jesus like, get behind me, Satan. And that's just a picture of uh, Peter's life. There's highs and there's lows. And sometimes they're right next to each other. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So, the night Jesus is going to be arrested, I'll never betray you. All these other goofballs, they probably will bail out. Not me. I'll be there to the end. And listen, I don't think that was a a false boast. I think Peter really meant it, right? Because when the crowd of soldiers came, Peter didn't run in fear at first. At first, he pulled out his sword. He tried to chop somebody's head off. He just got an ear. He was a fisherman, not a soldier. But when he realized, I don't know if anybody else is fighting, and most importantly, Jesus is not fighting, it's like all the wind went out of his sails. And he ran. And yet, I mean, you can see this push and pull tug of war going on in Peter's heart. Then he decided to follow at a distance, right? But then he gets in the courtyard, ends up denying Christ three times, the last time calling down curses on himself. I swear I don't know the man. If I do know the man, I'll be damned. He probably said something like that. And then he just looks at him and he weeps. Now... If you go read 1 Corinthians 15, don't do it right now, and you read kind of the list of the appearances, you notice there's this one-on-one appearance to Peter that gets mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 that doesn't show up in any of the gospel accounts. doesn't show up in Acts. And we don't know for sure, but it was probably something where Peter just met with Jesus and Jesus said, hey, I want you to know I love you. I forgive you. You're not like Judas. You're still in. But it's highly likely that Peter and probably all of the other apostles, maybe with the exception of John, because right, John was the one guy that stayed faithful all the way to the cross, thought, yeah, Jesus is merciful. He still loves us, but we ain't doing ministry anymore, right? We're out. We lost that privilege. We blew it. And so we pick up in John 21, after they've seen the risen Christ, but let's look at where they're at. John 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, or some translations say the twin, and Nathanael of Canaan in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and they got into the boat that night and they caught nothing. So this is why I mentioned this yesterday. Some commentators think it's likely that seven of the disciples, these seven, were all professional fishermen. Um, And so what are they doing? (laughs) He's probably like, we got to go back to our old career. We had a career as an apostle, we've lost that. Look, verse 4. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So this is very much like the Luke 5 incident. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's almost certainly John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself in the sea. Now that's a strange verse. Okay? Mm-hmm. This is one of those verses that's like, The Bible must be real, because otherwise, why would you make that up? It just doesn't make any sense. But the idea is he's probably out at work in whatever the ancient form of Jewish boxer shorts were, you know, kind of stripped kind of to the bare bones because he's working and sweating. But he's like, I'm about to go meet the Lord of all creation. I can't go meet Jesus, you know, in my underwear. And so he puts his robe on, dives in. He's he's like, I don't even want to wait for the boat to turn. I'm going to sprint to the shore. Do Do you see how this has changed? The last time when he experienced this miracle, what did he want? Get away from me. I'm sinful. You're holy. Get away from me. Now, you think Peter knows more about his sin or less about his sin in John 21? Much more. You think Peter knows more about the holiness of Christ or less about the holiness of Christ in John chapter 21? Much more. But now he's got the right response because he also knows much more about the love of Christ and the goodness of Christ. So he says, I can't be close enough to him quick enough. And he swims. And listen, he may have even known what was coming. But this is what's going to be so beautiful. Because look what's going to come. This is not going to be a fun conversation. Verse 8. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have caught now. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although they were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord, and Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breaking, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Okay, and he's saying, remember how you boasted that you loved me more than all the other disciples? You still want to make that boast, but guys? This, this can almost, at first glance, seem mean-spirited. It can seem like salt in the wound. Real repentance is not always fun. But it's always good. Okay. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again the second time, Simon, son of John, do you, know, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So two things here. What's happening? It, It is obvious. Jesus has recreated the scene around the charcoal fire where Peter had denied him, and he's walking him back through the three denials saying, there's a chance you want to deny me again, or do you love me? He's like, No, I love you. I love you. I love you. And you know I love you. He's not boasting in his love anymore, but he's being honest about it. And this is Peter being reinstated as an apostle. We're about to go, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. You're going to be a leader of my people. You're going to feed my sheep. Side note, Martin Luther, Martin Luther has this great quote where he says, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So anytime I feel an overflow of emotion towards the Lord, Lord, I love you. I want to serve you somehow. Well, God, what does God need? Nothing. <laughs> but his people need a lot of stuff. So when I feel this affection for Jesus, i ought to turn and say, where is some struggling Christian that I can help, that I can minister to, that I can serve, that I can disciple, that I can mentor? <clears throat> Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And he said, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, this can seem strange, but in some sense, this had to be very encouraging to Peter because think about it. I I bet, I bet all of us, maybe in a lesser version, have had this experience where You commit to Christ. You make some vow. Right? I'll never do that again. I'll always be faithful to do this. And then you blow it, right? And part of your repentance is, I'm so sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. Have mercy on me. I promise I'll never do that again. And I'll always do this the right way in the future. But what's always kind of a little fearful thought in the back of your mind when you're making that second vow? It didn't so go great the first time. Why am I thinking it's going to go any better this time? Right? And you can imagine Peter saying, man, I felt all kinds of passion for Jesus when I said, I'll never deny you. And then I did. What if I blow it next time? And Jesus is basically saying, you're not going to blow it next time. I am promising you. You're going to be faithful all the way to the end. You're going to, I'm encouraging you. You're going to make it all the way to the end. You're going to persevere all the way to your own cross one day. You're going to literally follow me to the cross. Should have been a huge encouragement to people. Now, I just want to make some points by way of application. First, if you have been in a season of ministry where you feel like it has been dry and you have not been catching any fish, anybody ever been there? Prayerfully go throw out your nets a second time. I mean, both of these stories that we have looked at today started with they fished all night and they caught nothing. The fish were not biting. And then they went and tried a second time. In the exact same place, basically and the boat is overloaded. That's the power of God. Prayerfully persevere in ministry even when it seems like no fruit is coming. Okay. The second thing, why, why should I persevere in ministry? Just because Jesus commanded me to, if, if I love Him, I should be feeding His sheep. And hopefully you love Him. So even if tomorrow God calls you off staff of campus outreach to go be a full-time accountant, great, be the best accountant you can be for the glory of Jesus. And then spend some of your free time feeding his sheep, mentoring younger believers for the rest of your life. The third thing, there is something so powerful about remembering the gospel in in a personal way, in a fresh way, okay? And this takes work, right? Partially, I have to spend some time thinking about my sin in a fresh way. So that, then when I remind myself of the grace of God, it's sweet, right? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It always covers over. Now, as best to understand, I came to Christ when I was age seven. And I grew up in a a very solid Christian home and a good church, you know. I went to a Christian university. I've been in full-time ministry for over half my life. So one of the biggest things that I can struggle with and my guess is some of you can struggle with too, is you show up for church on Sunday morning or you show up for your own you know, quiet time every morning and there can just be a sense of blah, 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 blah. Same old stuff over and over and over again. And at times it just feels kind of boring and bland and going through the motions, right? So, and that, that's bad. That's not good when you feel that way. It's wrong to feel that way. It's wrong to not feel awe about something so glorious. I mean, there is truth in familiarity breeds contempt, but we we have to fight against that, becoming overly familiar slash bored with the gospel. So Jonathan Edwards, there was a, a young girl that had come to Christ and had written him and asked him some questions, and he was responding to her and listening to this advice that he gave her. Though God has forgiven and forgotten your past sins, yet you don't forget them yourself. Often remember what a wretched bond slave you were in the land of Egypt. Often bring to mind your particular acts of sin before conversion, as the blessed Paul is often mentioning his blaspheming, persecuting, to the renewed humbling of his heart and acknowledging that he was the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle, and the least of the saints, and the chief of sinners. And be often in confessing your old sins to God. Also, let this follow following passage be often in your mind. Ezekiel 16, 63. Remember that you have more calls on some accounts, a thousand times more, to lament and humble yourself for sins that have been since conversion. Just pause and think on that for a second. That's one of the things that gets me the most. When God saves me, He knew all the sins I was going to do after I was saved with the Holy Spirit in me. And yet He still chose me in His mercy. No, I was going to be a big time screw up Christian, a big time rebel, a big time abuser of his grace. And he still said, I'll take that one. <clears throat> because of the infinitely greater obligations that are upon you to live to God, be always greatly humbled by your remaining sin. And never think that you lie low enough for it, but yet, just pause there. Right now, how does Jonathan Edwards' advice fit with modern-day psychology right now? Right? Spend time intentionally bringing to mind all of your old sins. And when you feel really low, don't ever think that you're low enough. You're like, good gracious, this is like a recipe for depression. But then listen how he ends the quote. But yet, don't be discouraged or by it, disheartened by it. Although we are exceedingly sinful, we have an advocate the greatest of whose love and faithfulness infinitely overtop the highest mountains of our sins. Right? I mean, I think Spurgeon said, it doesn't matter how high the mountain of our sin is, the flood of His mercy always rises higher. But y'all know this. If I think of my sin as tiny, then I only need a tiny Jesus to cover my sin. Then I only have a tiny Jesus to worship. Then I only have a tiny Jesus to sustain me. No wonder life is hard. You remember the, the uh, true story in Luke chapter 7. The Pharisee and almost certainly a prostitute, both in the same house interacting with Jesus. And Jesus says, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. Jesus wasn't trying to say, Pharisee, you're just so righteous and put together, you know. You need to go commit some big sin. Maybe you need to go become a prostitute first. Then you can really worship me. So no, no, no. He just wasn't aware of the depths of his own depravity. But when we really are kind of overwhelmed with what a wicked person we are, grace is so much sweeter. Mm -hmm. Charles Simeon said, the further down we will go in humiliation over our sin, the higher up we will go in admiration and worship. John Newton, right, late in life, I don't remember much. I do remember that I am a great sinner and he's a great savior. Our sins though they are many, his mercy is more. Now listen, I said there is a ditch over here. There is this ditch of depression, right? Probably all of us know somebody like this. Maybe one of us, you know, right? They're so reformed in their theology and they're so about total depravity all the time. They're just, I'm just the biggest sinner. all I'm just a loser. i just, uh, uh." you know, it's like they don't like themselves and nobody else likes them because that's all they can think about. So let, let me give you two things that have helped me. In some sense, in my worship life, in my prayer life, in my meditation life, my sin needs to be the backdrop, the ground note, so to speak. But in the forefront always needs to be Christ, His goodness, His glory, His mercy. So, so here's a little phrase I've developed to help myself. Glance and grieve at your sins. Right? What, what is a glance? When you think glance, what do you think of? What's a glance? It's a quick look. It's a short look. We're like, how long should I think about my sins? Think about your sins until there is some sense of grief. Some sense of sadness. Glance and grieve at your sins and then gaze and glory at your Savior. Right? If a glance is a quick look, what's a gaze? Right. Fixation. It's a, what's that? Fixation. It's a fixation. I like that word. It's a long look. It's an adoration, right? You start out thinking about your sins until you grieve, but then you turn your eyes to Christ. And in a sense, you ought to come out of your prayer closet mainly think about Christ his glory his goodness and that's your motivation for the rest of your life that's what keeps you going okay Um, so last off, I mean it's so inspiring because we know the rest of the story Peter is going to follow Jesus all the way to his own cross but here's the comfort in that for Peter and for Mm -hmm. us there's one place that we will never have to follow Jesus that he'll never say come follow me and that's the hell I mean Jesus went there Jesus went there for us Jesus went all the way there under the wrath of God but he says you don't have to go here I've handled this greatest debt this greatest burden so yeah you're going to have to suffer some you'll probably have some persecution hardship and some stumbles and falls but the worst thing that you could ever worry about it's already been taken away so don't worry be free. Be motivated. Go feed my sheep. Mm-hmm. Lord Jesus, we love you. We don't love you <laughs> near as we ought to. And Lord, I just, myself, and I think I can speak for all of us here, Lord, we want to repent of all the times we've gone through the motions and kind of lived a bare minimum Christianity. Uh, we don't want to do that. We, we want to have the right sense of grief over our sins. We want to have the right sense of awe at your majesty and goodness, and, and live in a sense of fresh daily wonder at who you are and why did you choose us? And out of the overflow of that love relationship, we want to go love others. Help us do it, Will. Help us persevere to the end. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.